Well, as we go to prayer this morning, I would like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 18. As for God, His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? Father, we're so blessed to know that you are our rock, our fortress, our high tower, our shield, the one who stands between us and the one who wants to destroy us. Father, we're thankful we live by your strength and by your power. And Lord, as we are looking at this man in Scripture who endeavored to live by his own strength, we are demonstrated through his life the folly of such a decision. Lord, I pray that we will live each day committed to you, trusting in you, resting in you. Lord, we ask that you will direct us during this hour, that you will bless us in our study of your word. We ask that you'll speak to our hearts. And as your word is proclaimed in the service, which is concurrent with this and in the other Sunday school classes this morning, we trust that you will touch each life according to the need of each individual through the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Last week we began this particular chapter, which in my opinion is one of the most profound chapters in the whole Old Testament because it speaks volumes to us and does it through demonstration. Of course, that is one of the principal values of our study of the Old Testament. We see God working in the lives of people and through those people teaching us lessons that sometimes we might not otherwise learn. If you remember, we talked about the first nine verses in the chapter last week. We read them, studied them. God made it clear to Saul, who was now the anointed king of Israel and had been the king of Israel for a couple of years now. He said to him that he wanted him to fulfill what God had promised several hundred years before, and that was that Israel was to destroy a nation called the Amalekites because of the evil which they had perpetrated upon God's people and because of the fact they had continued to be evil, an evil people to the very day in which Saul lived. And we saw that Saul did summon an army together, and we're told in the fourth verse that the army was made up of 200,000 of the men of Israel plus 10,000 of the men of Judah, and that uh, they attacked the Amalekites and uh, crushed them. The Kenites are mentioned there, and I talked briefly about them last week. They were a people uh, related to Moses in that Moses' wife's father was a Kenite. And uh, the Kenites had been the eyes of Israel in the wilderness, and so they were to be spared. So Saul warned them, and they fled from amongst the Amalekites, and then Israel attacked the Amalekites. So let's read on, beginning at verse 10, chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, verse 10. <coughs> then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then? Is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and this lowing of the oxen, which I hear? And Saul said, 
they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest they have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made head of all the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission, and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil, and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul's failure to heed the commandment of the Lord resulted in God coming to Samuel, the prophet of that day, and speaking directly to Samuel concerning Saul's disobedience. In verse 11 of this passage, we have to deal with a major issue concerning the nature of God. Because in verse 11 we read, God speaking, I regret that I have made Saul king. This is God's revelation to Samuel. And Samuel repeats it directly to Saul. The Hebrew word, which is translated in the New American Standard, which is what I read from here this morning, as regret, is translated in the King James Version, if you happen to have that, as <coughs> repent. God repented that he had made Saul king. The same word can be also translated sorry. And it is so in Genesis 6-6, where we read that God was speaking and he said, the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. The Lord was sorry. The Lord has regret. The Lord repents. Yet, one of the clearest teachings of all scripture is the immutability of God. We even see it repeated in the New Testament where we're, we're told about Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yahweh, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is immutable. He's unchanging. We also discover in Scripture the clear teaching of God's omniscience. God knows all things. He knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows the beginning from the end. He, he not only gave us Genesis, but He also gave us Revelation. And the things in Revelation, for the most part, have not happened yet. So there's nothing that is going to come up and surprise God. God is not capricious. God is not fickle as we as humans are, or as are the gods that uh, humans have created. All you have to do is study ancient Greek mythology and you read about the, the ancient gods of the Greeks and the Romans and you talk about capricious and fickle and silly. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. But God is not like that. God knows the beginning from the end and God is never surprised. Now, I want to say that emphatically because I, I, you may have seen the article that came out several months ago in the newspaper written by ne my next door neighbor. In, in which he said, God is surprised and that God doesn't know what's happening. He, he sees it, it's sort of like the, the playwright who doesn't really remember what his play was about and he watches it happen and he's surprised. And this is a pastor of a church here in Reading who says that. But this is not the God of the scripture. So when referring to God, the term regret, the term repent, the term sorry must be viewed as an anthropopathic term. That is, <laughs> so that solves the whole thing for you. Now we'll move on. <laughs> what that means is, 
It refers to term, a term or terms that describes the attitudes, the emotions, the actions of God as they appear to our finite human mind. This is the only way we can render it. We don't have any other way of rendering it because that's all we understand. No, we, we can only understand regret, repent, sorry, I'm sorry I did it, you know, I'm sorry I made man. That's the way we view it. But God can't be sorry in that sense, nor can God repent. How can you repent if, to repent means to change one's mind, and God is unchangeable, so that's a virtual impossibility, as we use the term. So we have to understand that we're imputing upon God human uh, emotions and views of things, and so it looks to us as if God was sorry he did this. I shouldn't have made Saul king. Well, God is not admitting here that he made a mistake. He knew. What Saul would do before he ever made Saul king. Now, how, how does that wash with us? Well, just think about us. If God knew what we would turn out like, that we would all as a human race be sinners and we would turn our back upon God, we would act as Adam did in the beginning and all the way down time, wouldn't you just say, if you were God, forget this program, I'm going to plan B, you know, I'm not going to go with plan A. But that isn't what God chose to do. I was reading in uh, The Daily Bread the other night, and I forget the author of that article, but he was saying that even in our prayer of repentance, we often don't have the right attitude. We don't have the right faith. We, you know, even in, the, in our endeavor to repent of our sins, we often are sinning. I, you know, I think he's saying it a little bit extreme there, but I, I think that the point is that we in our own flesh are incapable of doing anything right in God's eyes. It only happens through His power. Uh, he is the one who does good through us. And our place is to submit to Him. Our place is to believe in Him. And even faith is a gift from God. Amen. I was thinking about that this morning, and I was, I was praying and saying, Lord, um, I want to believe you for this, but I know that faith is a gift from you. So please, you know, grant that faith. God is, however, in, in the midst of all of this, God knows the beginning from the end. God knew what Saul was going to do. Knew, God knew what Saul was going to be like. But that doesn't mean that when it actually happens that God is not moved. God is not a giant stoic sitting up in heaven saying, I knew it all the time, or a cynic, or any of the other favorite things of the ancient Greeks. God has compassion, and God had compassion upon Saul. His unfathomable love. That's something, again, we can't comprehend. That's why it's called unfathomable love. We can't reach the bottom of it. We, it's a bottomless love. We don't understand it. But that love produces emotions which we describe as sorrow, as grief, as in, in human terms, and impart those towards God himself. But God is deeply moved when his people, or people that he is endeavoring to work with, foolishly reject the love, the joy, the peace that he's offering, that he's trying to shove off on us, and instead choose pain and hopelessness, and for many, ultimate damnation. It must, I think, be remembered that although God is perfect in his foreknowledge and in his sovereign plan, his blessings and his cursings are conditional. We've noted this before. How he deals with us is conditional upon our response, even though he knows ahead of time what our response will be. 
they are still conditional upon our response. That does not make God changeable. He doesn't say, oh, they're just not going to do what I've asked them, so I'm going to have to do something else. No, he already knew what he was going to do, and he already had a plan in action. Somehow that works so that God is not changeable, and we are not stuck in a rut that we can't get out of. You know, it's not like the die has been cast and you're stuck in this, you know, this is extreme Calvinism where you're, 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 you're straight-jacketed and, and there's nothing you're going to do ever to change the way your life's going to turn out. No. There's something in between there that we don't understand and won't until we cross Chile Jordan. God has always offered blessing based on obedience and cursing based on disobedience. Let me, let me read a, a passage that a story of what God did for and through Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 18, most of you know this passage. Jeremiah chapter 18, beginning at the first verse. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I shall announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot it, to pull it down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised, with which I had promised to bless it. The point being that nations, individually, as persons and as nations, we are clay in the potter's hands. God is the potter, we are the clay, and it's, it's God's right to do whatever He wishes with the clay. The fact that if God ordains to do something good, and, and those to whom he wants to do good rebel against him, that he chooses not to do that good, that doesn't mean that God is changeable, because it was all built into his sovereign plan from the very beginning. And we live according to his ultimate sovereign plan. I think one day it's going to be really wonderful when we cross into his presence, and suddenly the light goes on, and we say, Oh, that's how it works. I think it's going to cause a lot of extreme Calvinists and extreme Arminians to suddenly say, well, okay. Hug each other. Hug each other, right. <laughs> We're both right. <laughs> you know, that is one of the biggest problems we have as humans in trying to deal with some of these theological issues is that we are so finite so narrow. We try to define everything in only in terms that we can understand. Of course, there's any other way we can do it, but to not give room for God to be more uh, than we can describe Him as being. Clearly, the words of the Lord that are recorded here in the 11th verse do not refer to an isolated incident 
of disobedience. But to what had become in effect a lifestyle for Saul, a lifestyle for Saul. And we've seen that in previous instances that we've already read in the two or three chapters preceding this particular chapter. He had chosen, he had chosen to disregard the command of the Lord and to rule by his own strength rather than by God's strength. God said, I will strengthen you. I will lead you. I will guide you by my... It wasn't that blunt or that short, but that's exactly what he is ultimately saying. This decision, of course, was utter folly, and we've seen it to be a double folly. First of all, because of his earlier uh, disobedience, it cost his, him the dynasty. Jonathan would not succeed him on the throne, even though Jonathan was a far more worthy man than Saul. But Jonathan would not succeed him on the throne. And now, secondly, it will cost him the very kingship itself to him personally. The remainder of the book of 1 Samuel is the story of how Saul lost the kingship. Because God didn't just go, it's all over, Saul. No. Year after year passed. Year after year passed. And slowly, the painful process was exposed by which Saul would lose the kingship. Samuel was distressed. You have to really feel for Samuel in the midst of all of this. Samuel was much like the pastor of a congregation who hears the word of the Lord and then relays that word to the congregation. He's sort of the, the uh, middleman. The, uh, well, of course, he's more part of the congregation than anything else. But Samuel was distressed by the words of the Lord, not only because he had played a role in the anointing and the presentation of Saul before all the people. Here he is. Here's God's choice of your king. Of course, God, Samuel had kind of protected himself earlier by saying, this is, God, uh, this is not God's idea. This is your idea. So here's the one God's allowing you to have. But Samuel also loved God, and he loved God's people. And so all of this was very painful to Samuel himself. And I think the closer we walk to, with God and the better we know God, the more empathetic we are with God in His feelings and His love and, and His pain as, it, as He reaches out to minister to, to people. The conditions, the rebellions that bring sorrow to the heart of God bring sorrow to our heart. I think it's a slow process that God works in our lives where where sin becomes to us a pain. We, we, are, we feel pain because of other sin. And, and we don't go there and, and just kind of snicker, you know, <laughs> what they're doing. We're pained because God is pained by, by this sin. Samuel was so distressed, we're told, that he agonized all night in prayer. Well, early the next morning, Samuel set out to find Saul. He had a message to deliver to Saul. And of course, Samuel was not at the battle with the Amalekites. So Samuel only knows what happened because God revealed it to him in this revelation. Now, where is Samuel coming from? Maybe he's coming from his home there in central Israel. But wherever he's going, he's headed south because he knew the battle was fought in the south, way down in the southern part of the Negev. And we noted that last week. And so Samuel is out on the uh, road. Uh, moving in that particular direction, and someone meets him along the way. We're not told who the person was. And this person tells Samuel that Saul has set up a monument for himself at Carmel, which means plantation, which was a village located about eight miles south of Hebron. 
the battle was, you see the name of Malachite down here. Here's the Negev, here's Beersheba. The battle was fought about 30 miles south, right about down in here, between Israelites and the Amalekites. So Saul has now marched his army back. And the scripture says that Samuel meets him on the road. So Samuel is, I mean, Samuel meets this spokesman. Samuel was probably going south. There is what is called the ridge route or the highway that connects the major towns. So you go from Gibeah to Jerusalem to Bethlehem to uh, Hebron down this way towards Beersheba. There's a road here. And so Saul was on that, Samuel was on that road. And we don't know where he met this person, possibly down in here somewhere. But Saul had already passed by and had already headed on down to Gilgal, which is over here. Now remember, as, as we read the passage, there were sheep and oxen with the men. Well, you don't move sheep and oxen very quickly. You maybe if you just keep them on a go and you might be able to put a putter along at a mile an hour. And so it, it took a long time to, from the battle site to actually move them all the way over here to Gilgal, which is where Samuel will finally find Saul. So we're talking about the passage of many, many days here between the battle and possibly the vision that God gave to Samuel. And then Samuel setting out, says, of course, early the next morning after the vision. So the vision must have come much after the battle for Saul to get that far because Samuel will meet Saul in Gilgal. So they had already come all the way up and gone down to Gilgal in, in that particular period of time. So we're talking about maybe 100 miles. So 100 miles, let's say they move 10 miles a day, that's 10 days. So it, it took a while for them to uh, get there. So this is more or less the time frame we're talking about here. Why, is, why did Saul do this? Well, if you have ever studied ancient history, you know that it was very characteristic for ancient ki kings to create what were called stele. Uh, these were uh, stone uh, pillars upon which, you know, which sometimes were carved and upon which were written the great glories and victories of the king. And there are many examples of these that exist in the ancient Near East that archaeologists have uncovered. In fact, there is a whole cliff in, in Iran where the whole front of the cliff is carved. I mean, we're talking about 100 feet high up in the air. And the whole cliff was carved with the great victories of the Persian king. And so as you uh, think about this, we, this is what Saul has done. He's had a stone raised and probably on it he carved Saul, the great king of Israel, victor over the Amalekites, you know, something to that nature. A monument raised and the scripture tends to emphasize for himself, for himself. Did that mean that he gave no credit to God? Did he in any way uh, on the monument say that Yahweh gave him the strength for this victory? Well, we don't know. The scripture is silent about that. It simply says that he raised, this man says to, to Samuel, that he raised a monument for himself. If he gave no credit to God uh, in that monument, of course, further in reinforces the truth of God's revelation to Samuel. Well, the informant said, and he's gone on down to Gilgal. You've missed him. He's already gone down to Gilgal. And so with a heavy heart, Samuel sets out to go to Gilgal. But it's the encounter that's so amazing. The encounter with Saul and Samuel when Samuel arrives at Gilgal. Now, was Saul constantly watching to see if Samuel came or did some... Uh, uh, you know, one of the sentinels say, run down and say, Samuel's coming. Those details aren't given to us. But what we discover in the passage is that 
Saul comes running out like a little kid with this, uh, with, uh, to, all excited to meet Samuel to express that he'd been obedient to the Lord. This is illustrated by his effusive declaration, Blessed are you of the Lord, Saul says to Samuel. I have carried out the command of the Lord. No, that's exactly what he, well, that's what the scripture says. He rushes up to Samuel and says, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. I have been obedient to the Lord. Why was he so quick to say that? He didn't have a bit of a guilty conscience here. Did Saul believe that because he had successfully defeated the Amalekites, that God must have accepted what he had done in spite of the fact he did not fulfill God's command? Isn't that human nature? If we do something right, that we assume God is pleased with us, even if we have disobeyed in aspects of it? I think that's one of the reasons we face such turmoil in America today. That the church is in such a dilapidated state in America today. Because we want to, to do some of what God asks us to do, but not all of it. Because all of it seems too extreme. Kill all these wonderful animals? What have they done? We just killed, the, we killed all the crippled ones. You know, the ones with three eyes and a short leg and spotted coats and whatever the rest might have been. Did he really believe that God was happy with him? Or was he simply trying to convince Samuel that God was happy with him? Well, whatever the case was, <laughs> Samuel was unconvinced. This guy Samuel would have been a tough guy to run up against. Uh, Samuel doesn't accept much baloney. Samuel just seems to see right through the junk, right smack to the heart of the matter. We've seen this so, several times now as we've looked at Samuel, particularly relative to Saul. Instead of being convinced, Samuel makes one of the most profound retorts in human history. When Saul comes running up and says, I have carried out the command of the Lord, Samuel instantly replies to him, What then is the bleeding of the sheep which I hear? and the lowing of the oxen. If you've obeyed, what am I hearing? <laughs> what am I hearing? Talk about quotable quotes. I don't know if you ever read those quotable quotes in Reader's Digest. Some of them are quotable and some of them I think are pointless or useless. But this is quotable. Samuel lost no time on pleasantries. Oh, your Royal Highness, I am so glad to see you. I've got a word. Would you like to hear it? <laughs> No, he just cut right to the chase. Does Saul understand what he's saying? Yep, Saul understands what he's saying. Just like Adam in the Garden of Eden, when God put the finger in the problem, he instantly passed the buck. I'm not the guilty party. They did it. The guys over there, the men, my soldiers, they did it. They're the ones who saved alive the best of the animals. I didn't do it. They did it. But even then, he says, but they're not really guilty of anything bad either. They haven't really violated God's command because the only reason they saved the animals was to sacrifice them to the Lord. Well, without debating with Saul at that moment, Samuel told Saul that he had a message for him from the Lord. He didn't start arguing with him about you know, the details of this thing. He simply said, I have a message that I want to give to you. 
Now, unless Saul was absolutely clueless, I think it could only have been with a bit of foreboding that he said to Samuel, um, okay, tell me what the Lord had to say. Notice how Samuel begins his, his message from the Lord. He says, he, he points out the fact that when Saul was first anointed as king over Israel, he was a humble man. He was little in his own sight. That was good. He's given Saul credit here. Then the Lord gave him a clear task to do, a mission to perform on God's behalf. Go and exterminate the Amalekites because I have made, <clears throat> I made the proclamation for their extermination 300 years ago and I intend for that prophecy to be refilled, that, that command to be fulfilled now. The logical question then becomes that Samuel could have asked Saul, why did you become so arrogant and self-dependent that you could believe that you could choose what part of God's command to obey and what part to disobey? Who gave you that right? Notice Samuel does not spread the guilt. Saul said, I'm not the guilty party. The, the men did it over here. <laughs> Samuel buys none of it. He says, why then did you not obey? Why did you not obey? Whatever was true about his men, it may be very well true that his men wanted to keep the animals, and, and certainly they were as guilty as Saul. But Saul was the king. Saul was the man given the command. As Harry Truman said, the buck stops here, and the buck stopped with Saul. He was responsible for ultimate obedience to the Lord's command. Well, let's read the next few verses because they are equally profound. Verse 20 of 1 Samuel 15. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil. The people took some of the spoil, the sheep, ox, and oxen and choices of the things devoted to destruction to a sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul continued to insist that he had obeyed the word of the Lord. All of the Amalekites had been killed except one little guy, Agag. No matter what he intended to do. Tom? The, the Amalekites also, it kind of doesn't it kind of infer that all, not all of them were destroyed when Samuel talks about, because he says you, fought, you were going to fight against them, but why did you not obey the voice of the Lord but rushed upon the spoil? So it sounds like they left, they let some go. Because later on, doesn't David fight them again? Yes, he does. And, but we also understand, uh, what you're saying is, is very probably true. But there were other Mal Amalekites that also lived further to the north than this particular group here. And, of course, it says in the passage that we read it, last week 
that in verse 7, so Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt, which does seem to mean he chased them and they fled. And so there's always the possibility that some had escaped, yes. So, uh, you know, in Saul's eyes, though, he has done all that he was commanded to do. And he's looking at this as, well, and I just say one little guy, you know, one little guy here. Whatever he intended to do with Agag, he, I don't think, felt that God would quibble with him about one man. If he had killed tens of thousands, what's one guy? And, you know, that, to me, that speaks volumes. That is the attitude of so many people, uh, probably all of us at some point in time, about the word of the Lord. We want to believe most of it. We want to obey most of it, but we don't want to obey all of it. (laughs) Because some things just go really against what we want to do. Of course, whatever is the case about the people, there's no denying there were an awful lot of animals left. (laughs) You know, it wasn't like one animal was left. Uh, There there apparently were hundreds, maybe thousands of of the animals that were still alive. And so, of course, to get around that deficiency, he blamed his men. But, But even in that, he excused them by claiming that the only purpose was to have fine animals to sacrifice to the Lord. Notice what he says. To the Lord, your God at Gilgal. Saul's not even taking credit for him being his God, your God at Gilgal. I think this was a lie. I, I don't think the men ex- had actually planned, whatever, were their, whatever the role was of Saul, whatever the role of, was, role of the men were, was, they were all guilty of this. And I don't think they planned to, ex- to execute all those animals. I don't think they planned to sacrifice all those animals. I think they planned to keep the most of them for themselves. <laughs> After class last week, Frank came up and uh, made a, a comment that I think is very apropos. We haven't gotten to the latter part of the book of Samuel. We'll probably get there, uh, Lord willing, by the end of the year. No, I'm sorry. It's, it's not even in that. It's, it's in 2 Samuel. The end of 2 Samuel. Oh, my goodness, 2 Samuel. Next decade. Next decade. <laughs> but in, in 2 Samuel 24, 24, David is speaking. David wants to make a sacrifice on a, on a threshing floor that will eventually be the site of the temple. And David says to Aruna, who is the guy from whom he wants to buy it, he said, because the man says, look, I'll give you the place, I'll give you the animals, I'll give you for the sacrifice, I'll give you the, the plow that you can use for the wood. And, and David said, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. And I, I think what Frank was pointing out last week to me afterwards is true, that if there was any truth in their statement that we save some of the animals to sacrifice to the Lord, they wanted to save animals that didn't cost them anything. They weren't sacrificing their animals. They weren't going home and getting their animals and saying, well, the Lord gave us a great victory, so I'm going to sacrifice my favorite sheep or my favorite dog. They were fat sacrificing ones they were supposed to kill anyway. I mean, these were already dead meat. So why not sacrifice them? Kill two birds with one stone. Do you remember the application you had, Frank, in terms of can you state it in a short statement, how you applied that relative to giving? Well, the concept that uh, if I could win the lottery, I could use all that money to advance God's kingdom. I've heard that a time or two. Yeah. So that which cost them nothing, it's easy to give to the Lord apart, right? Rather than giving from what little we already have, which would be a sacrifice. I think, it's a, I think it's an important principle. I think it applies here as well as, of course, to the passage in end of 2 Samuel where uh, David makes that point straight. Samuel was 
unconvinced by any of Saul's arguments. Saul could have argued all day and Samuel would not have been moved. Instead, he proclaimed one of the most succinct statements of truth to be found anywhere in Scripture. Here we have the essence of the Christian life. What is the essence of the Christian life? Obedience to God's Word. That's it. That's the essence. That's the heart of it. Nothing else cuts it. Not sacrifices, not offerings, not church attendance, not liturgies, not burning of candles or kissing of icons, not enthusiastic singing of praise choruses with one's hands lifted in the air, not teaching Sunday school class. None of this has any value unless it is coupled with obedience to the Word of God. Without that being the foundation, the rest of it is wood, hay, and stubble. These prophets are tough guys. Let me read you statement that uh, you've heard certainly many occasions that Hosea makes. Hosea says this in Hosea 6.6, 6, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God wants us more to know Him than to give money or anything else we might give to God. He wants us to know Him. Because the sacrifice of our time and our energy and of ourselves to him is the single most important sacrifice. Then Micah uh, says it this way, Micah 6, 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in, a thousand, in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The answer, in effect, of course, is no. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Christianity in America, for the most part, has missed the boat. Christianity in America has become a program doing this and doing that and doing something else and building gigantic churches. Every time I open Christianity Today, I love the magazine, but the ads in the front almost make me puke. These organizations that raise, oh, we raised $24 million to build this edifice for this church, you know, someplace. And well, wonderful. You know, God did build a grand edifice called the temple, but how many of them were there? One. But we have to have grand edifices on every corner. And the problem, I don't think it would be anything wrong with the grand edifices if inside the grand edifices were obedient people instead of people coming to be you know, scintillated by this and that and the other thing and whatever program is, uh, is being run. Just how bad is disobedience to God's word? Well, we're told here it's defined as rebellion and insubordination which are a great evil in God's eyes. How great? As evil as divination and idolatry. Well, what happened to people who practiced divination in ancient Israel? They were excommunicated, which meant they were not only thrown out of Israel, they were damned forever unless they repented. When it says in the Old Testament that they were to be cut off from Israel, that doesn't just mean cut off from living amongst the people of Israel. It means cut off forever from the promises of God. That's how bad divination was. And divination is equal to disobedience. So disobedience results in being cut off. 
Saul's disobedience was an expression of his choice to reject God's word. That's where it all comes down to. And that's where the foundation of the argument today is. It's, it's in the word of God. That's the foundation. As some will say, your bibliolatry, not bibliolatry, bibliology, that's the word I want. Your bibliology is the foundation of it all. Do we accept the word of God as, as God's sovereign, truthful, unerring statement to us that must be obeyed? Or do we decide, well, you know, uh, maybe all of it wasn't inspired, parts of it were, we'll just determine which parts were, the part I don't like wasn't, the part I like was, you know, kind of deal. Like Martian back in the second or third century, who basically cut out of the New Testament everything he didn't like. Same way with Thomas Jefferson in his Bible. Any miracle, he cut it out and threw it away. That rejection of God's word resulted in Saul being rejected by God. It's very similar to Adam. When he disobeyed in the Garden of Eden, what was that disobedience based in? Disobedience to God's word. God said, thou shalt not. He did which was disobedience to God's word. And what did he lose? Kingship of the world. The crucial nature of obedience to God's word for both this life and for the next was made very clear by Jesus. And I'll end today with this passage that you all know so well. It was very interesting. Years and years ago when we lived in the Bay Area, some Jehovah's Witnesses sent us this passage, implying, of course, that it applied to us. Jesus said in Matthew Chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does what? The will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and in your name stand for hours, and with our hands uplifted singing praise choruses, or whatever else it might be that's a manifestation of what we think we're doing here. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against the house, and yet it did not fall. For it had been founded upon the rock, Christ Jesus, the Word. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The rain descended and the floods came and the wind blew and burst against the house and it fell and great was, was its fall. How do we know how to obey the Word of God unless we know the Word of God? So we have to start out with knowledge of the Word of God, then obedience to the Word of God, and that's the foundation of the whole Christian life. It's very clear, not only from the Old Testament, but from the New. didn't have a relationship. I think that Matthew passage is people can have everything and yet not have a... Yeah. relationship, but Saul keeps saying the Lord your God. Yeah. Maybe you picked that message that somewhere and I just missed it, but that, that really leaps out at me, both at least twice. Yeah. He says, I did this for the Lord your God, he says to yeah. Samuel, not his God. Right. Contrast that with David and the Psalter. Of course, Saul didn't oh, write yeah. any songs. <laughs> Probably didn't deserve to. <laughs> David, it's my God. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's where it becomes obvious where he stood. Yeah.